0: Comrades, there is no shame to stand up and say you're a Marxist. We stand up proudly because workers at long last are beginning to wake up. If they're going to stand up and defend our jobs and services, our communities, then there can be no compromise with the bosses. There can be no compromise with this patchy government. There can be no compromise with this system which brutalises people day in and day out. Our banner is the banner of socialism. As Marxists, we have to understand that people can be sincere
1: for as long as they like. What we're about is serious, serious about creating the conditions in society where youth can look forward to a future. The only way we're going to achieve these things,
0: the only way for us is not to nationalise one bank, is to take over the whole flaming lot, take over the banks, the insurance companies, big business, and put that wealth to work on behalf
1: of working people.
0: Hello and welcome to this new episode of Revolutionary Ideas, the Marxist podcast from Socialist Alternative. Our history is traced back to the Militant Tendency, a Marxist organisation which took shape for the first time in the 1960s. Militant began with small forces, but through patient work and a Marxist perspective, we were able to turn our tiny force into something which could lead key struggles throughout those years. Militant reached its peak through the Liverpool City Council struggle and the tax campaign. Both took on the Thatcher government and in the second case led to her eventual uh, downfall in 1990. In this episode, we want to ask, how was Militant actually built? To answer this, we have with us today Paul Gerrard. Paul is a member of Socialist Alternative in Manchester, but he was also a participant in Militant back in those decades. So, Paul, before we get started, what was it that actually led you to join Militant in the first
1: place? Well, I'm nearly 72 this year, Tom, and uh, so... Uh, When I was 15 in 1966, I joined the local Labour Party and uh, this was in Leeds where I was growing up at the time and uh, it turned out to be quite a radical local Labour Party and um, there were a lot of left-wing papers on sale. Uh, There was uh, a a thing called Voice of the Unions, uh, Morningstar, we would see sometimes and uh, labour worker, which later became socialist worker and the militant so I'd go along every month and buy a couple of these papers every month and um, I liked uh, the militant I was attracted to the uh, uh, labour worker or socialist worker this was a group called the international socialists at the time but um, and I went to some of their meetings uh, but I preferred the militant. The militants seemed to be serious. They were doing consistent work in the Labour Party. They were very working class orientation. They took their Marxist education very seriously as well. I was 15, 16. I wanted to understand more about Marxism. Uh, people were lending me books by Lenin and, and stuff like that. So that was how I got involved. I didn't actually get recruited until my first year at university in uh, 1969. So that's, that's how I came to be a member of Militant.
0: So Militant was, was, a, was a Trotskyist uh, organisation, wasn't it? Descended uh, from the Fourth International, which was the international organisation um, set up by Leon Trotsky and his supporters uh, in the 1930s. Um, could you expand on that a little bit and give a bit of a backdrop um, to where Militant came from? What were its origins? What were
1: its roots? Well, I suppose we'd have to start with the, the Second World War and the Trotskyists in Britain in the course of the war, towards the end of the war, were united. All, all the groups, uh, or many of the groups that you see today, were actually working together in that uh, Trotskyist party, which had, you know, a number of successes. There was a lot of uh, industrial workers joined, uh, joined it joined the war because... Um, The the Labour Party and the Communist Party were breaking strikes uh, and uh, the Trotskyists were the only people who were supporting uh, the the workers at the time and were leading strikes. But the the Trotskyist movement had an enormous problem. Trotsky had been assassinated in 1940. He'd seen the war. He'd seen what was coming. And he predicted, uh, uncontroversially really, he predicted that the war would lead to a revolutionary upsurge. So the Trotskyists
0: were were ready
1: for that, were expecting that, were preparing for that. And of course there was, in many ways, there was a, a very violent civil war in Greece, which the British army intervened in on the side of the monarchists to prevent the partisan armies and communists into power, there were elements of workers control in Germany and so on, even in Germany the Christian Democrats were calling for a kind of socialism in 1945 because uh, fascism and capitalism were completely discredited and the masses wanted to build a new world but the Trotskyists expecting to see a huge revolutionary upsurge that they could lead they didn't quite see that and it was Ted Grant who uh, was uh, later became a leader of our trend in the movement, who analysed what was going on in the period 1945 to 1950. The capitalists were able to ride the storm of the revolution and the Communist Party obliged them in, in that form. So that was an important political difference that started to separate the different trends within the Fourth International, some of them were saying in the early 1950s, yeah, the revolutionary upsurge is still to come, because they, they were tied to this perspective that Trotsky had laid out before the war, but they weren't observing what they were actually seeing in, uh, in reality, amongst those things being that Stalinism had come out of the war enormously strengthened. The They didn't really recognise that. Did they? No, they didn't. They didn't understand that. They uh, they didn't recognise that. I mean, at one point, one Stalinist regime or another controlled a fifth of the Earth's surface. By the time the Chinese revolution had been uh, successful in 1948-49, it was a fifth of the globe, with Eastern Europe, Soviet Union, and China. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, Vietnam and Cambodia and so on. So, the other ten other trends didn't really recognize that Stalinism was enormously strengthened. When they did, they started to see that dissident elements within what, we, what was widely called the Eastern Bloc at the time. Uh, when Tito, for example, started to kick over the traces and oppose. What was going on uh, in uh, in moscow they went overboard on, on him and called him an unconscious trotskist and flirted with uh, they sent youth brigades from the fourth international didn't they of this like they uh, sent work brigades youth brigades to begin the the task of building uh, socialism in uh, in yugoslavia failing to recognize that fundamentally the regime was of the same kind as what you had in moscow it wasn't fully Uh, consolidated and so so Ted developed the theory of proletarian uh, bonapartism which was operating in Yugoslavia where they they'd strike a blow against the remnants of the capitalist class uh, uh, one week and then uh, another week they would start to to clamp down on workers control and uh, and so the regime would zigzag uh, in a way that Moscow wasn't zigzagging anymore but Moscow had zigzagged exactly like that in the late 20s and 30s and and Ted recognised that was got what was going on in uh, Yugoslavia but the 4th International went overboard on it um, the, other, the other question of course which became critical was the question of the colonial revolution um, where imperialism was uh, finding in the, in the post-war world, they couldn't directly dominate African, uh, Arab countries in the same way that they had before with direct military administration. For example, France and Britain carving up the Middle East, sharing out, you know, uh, Palestine as against the Levant, and, uh, you know, Lebanon and, and Syria and, and places like that. You, they couldn't continue like that. ...because the masses were going to throw them out... ...as for example the Algerians... Uh, ...through the French Act... Uh, in, ...in a war of national liberation... ...now our, our tendency supported that... Uh, ...supported kicking the French out, ...but we pointed out that... ...what you were going to get... ...was a left nationalist regime... ...that would be unstable... Uh, ...would not be a working class regime... ...would not lead to socialism... Uh, some of them became regimes of proletarian bold some of them didn't, some of them became what you might call worker states, and some of them slipped back, you know, through the consolidation of uh, imperialist power in the Middle East, and, uh, you know, that that went into reverse, but it, it, when you read Trot- uh, Ted's writings, y- you see that... that, that he, what he wrote in 1948, 1953, 1957, you can look at today and say, yes, that was a correct analysis of what was going on. So that led to a split between the RSL, as we were known at the time, Revolutionary Socialist League. This is before my time, but not long before my time. Um, And uh, the Fourth International were cheerleaders, really, for peasant movements, Uh, The RSL always put the emphasis on the working class, even within the uh, colonial countries, the formerly colonial countries, but particularly put the emphasis on the role of the working class in uh, the advanced countries, Europe, uh, America, and so on. And uh, the the comrades uh, Ted Grant and others took uh, a key document on the question of the colonial revolution to the world congress in 1965 it wasn't uh, taken note of it wasn't really uh, debated they couldn't get it properly debated and um that led to the parting of the ways really
0: yeah well i, su- I suppose what we're really talking about here as well is is I, su- I guess is that this period where militant was first coming into existence the 1960s was not quite the same period as just prolonged crisis um, that we're facing today. There was a post-war boom. Um, the system did look somewhat stable, or at least a lot more stable uh, than it looks uh, now. And that meant that Marxists had to navigate that period. I mean, how, how did Militant navigate that um, at the time? Um, and I suppose the the, the second question that would come to mind for me would be, um, you know, any time you Google militant tendency, and, and I don't know, read about it on, on, on Wikipedia or wherever, you read that militant was an entryist organisation, practised entry work, um, you know, as an organisation within uh, the Labour Party. What, why did militant do that? What were the reasons uh, behind uh, that, that particular um, tactic?
1: Yes, I think you're right to draw attention to the question of the the, the post-war boom—it was a very, very different world, the one that I grew up in as uh, as a as a child and as a young uh, teenager. So there was a boom in the economy. There were also new industries coming in, like electronics and plastics, the motor vehicle industry, which didn't really in, uh, exist before the war but came in later. So, uh, I mean, I remember the general election of 1964. I was uh, I was uh, 13, uh, destroying uh, Tory and uh, Lib Dem posters because we were very excited by the prospect of a, a Labour victory in in 64. It was uh, a period when Labour was still a strong party. In the big cities, in the towns, Labour, based on the trade union strength, the trade unions were tremendously powerful at the time. Uh, y- you can read about the figures of trade union membership in the 50s and the 60s, and it was organically tied to the Labour Party. So this was, you know, the natural place for socialists was in many ways in the Labour Party. For for all that they decry it now, uh, all the Trotskyist groups in the 50s fetched up in the Labour Party. Um, So, entrism, everybody was practising entrism of one kind or another. The difference... With the militant was that we were serious about it and uh, made it into a lasting tactic it was important to realize that it was a tactic not a permanent arrangement and i think in many ways if you read what trotsky and his followers well most of trotsky actually because he battled with his followers to get them to adopt the entry tactic in uh, France and belgium and uh, and uh, other other countries when they were reluctant to uh, to do so um, but the, uh, the the point was he was preparing his supporters for very rapid splits within the Labour Party, the very rapid crystallization of of uh, mass left wings, the possibility of a revolutionary party um, Uh, really uh, developing in those situations which was the situation in the 30s that was clearly not the situation in the uh, uh, 1950s so it was going to be a long-term tactic in some ways for the wrong reasons but it became a tactic for the right reasons in the sense that we developed a layer of workers around us a layer, a layer of uh, active CADA members who, m- many of them shop stewards, many of them trade unionists, uh, many of them Labour Party ward activists, many, many of them at a certain period councillors, who were uh, Marxists, developing a, a, a Marxist uh, party. We had to be cautious, we were careful about who we approached to join. We denied being a secret organisation. We said it's a paper, it's a group of people who support the, uh, the paper. Uh, but, um, you know, and, and m- most workers understood that because they knew what the bureaucracy would do to us and what eventually they did do uh, when uh, the, the, the tide...
0: Which we can get onto a little bit later. Yeah, we'll come back to yeah. that.
1: But um, we, we, were, uh, we were the serious uh entry entry group and we made it work and one of the reasons we made it work is that we didn't compromise on our marxism but we were patient with people Uh, we didn't denounce people uh we argued it out we said well let's debate the question why don't you come to our labour party young socialist branch and we'll we'll debate with the councillor we'll debate with the mp uh, and we'll have, you know, the, the movement can only benefit from a, a clash of ideas, and so, and we were absolutely rigorous about that. We never entered into abuse or denunciations or e- easy getting easy popularity with other people on the left. Uh, by uh, in a sense, we acted as citizens of the Labour Party. You know, we we've, we've got rights, but we've got responsibilities. We'll argue our case. We'll sell a paper after the meeting. We'll sell our paper in town on a, on a Saturday morning. We'll sell our paper in the trade union branch uh, and, and so on. But we expect we, we will have a respectful debate and it, it worked. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I get the sense that Militant came
0: really in many ways at a perfect time. Um, in 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 history, you know this is the the the, the mid to late 1960s. Um, the post-war boom hasn't quite ended just yet, uh, but it's clearly coming to its uh, to its latter years. You know, you hadn't quite seen the full revolutionary explosions that were to come, but obviously, you know, militant was expecting them. Um, and very very quickly, um, you began seeing movements like the um, you know the strikes in Britain, of course, in the in the early 1970s um, that. That brought down the uh, the Tory government of, of Ted Heath. You saw the mass movement against the war in Vietnam. Um, so, you know, of, of course, in the US, uh, but also um, you know internationally. But last but not least, as well, um, the, the the mass general strike in uh, in France in uh, in May 1968. What what did militant say about these events, and what did militant do around these uh, particular events?
1: Uh, well as I said the, the, the paper The Militant was first produced in 1964 we'd had a bit of a collaboration with the what are now the SWP for a while with a youth paper called Young Guard but that didn't really work out we realised we needed a paper of our own uh, to express with clarity a uh, 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 Marxist position so the paper actually, the first issue of the paper was 1964 I didn't see it until 1967, uh, really, in my local Labour Party. And it was badged as the Marxist paper for Labour and Youth. You're absolutely right. The revolutionary upsurge came, particularly in 1968. I remember it very, very vividly. And so that that was what really began my serious engagement with, with the, the militant. But what was impressive was that at every stage, I mean, I was very, obviously, we were all very, taken up with uh, what was happening in France and I remember the issue of the militant that came out it will have been probably June uh, of uh, of 1968 and the banner headline was all power to French workers in other words we recognised that this was not just the biggest general strike in the history of capitalism not just 10 million workers on strike but it was actually a revolutionary situation when even on the basis of rising wages but of increased oppression within uh, the factories that was one of the things that the workers complained about the most the the communist party leaders were saying we need more money we need a shorter working week and they were saying no we need to get we need to get rid of these ba- bastard <laughs> supervisors and the speed up and, and the three shift system, that, you know, a lot of, there was a lot of that. It was about workers' control. And it was workers' important. control, exactly. The workers' instituted workers' control, and the Communist Party tried to make it all about getting a better deal for my members, you know, uh, and they wanted to keep the students out of it. The, the, a lot of the left groups in Britain were obsessed. The uh, international socialist, the international Marxist group were more obsessed with the the, the student movements and getting people like Daniel Cohn Bendit over to Britain to speak, we were more interested in what was going on in in the factories. And the crisis this was creating in the Communist Party, which just as the Labour Party in Britain was the the big workers' party that a lot of workers looked to, the, the big workers' party in France, of course, was the Communist Party, which controlled trade union federations, had a network of factory branches, cells, Big, big among the youth as well, among the student youth. Um, and, uh, you know, we were prepared, you know, we were in the Labour Party and we were selling that in the Labour Party, all power part of French workers. It's a revolutionary situation. You can say no other than that the French workers need to uh, to take power. I mean, the other issue uh, for me was, of course, the question of, uh, of Vietnam. You're quite right to mention the Vietnamese revolution which was uh, hotting up and the opposition to the American involvement uh, was uh, was also hotting up and that was the the big year for demonstrations over Vietnam. What was interesting to me and I, I had to adjust to this, uh, there was an organisation called the Vietnam Solidarity Campaign. They had a, if you like, a an organisation called Revolutionary Socialist Student Federation, the RSSF, which was open to people at school. And I joined it. I still got my membership card from the RSSF in 1968. And I remember uh, wearing the Vietnam Solidarity Campaign uh, badge and and a a militant supporter uh, came up uh, to me and said, you know, we uh, we don't support that. Uh, because it's uh, it's it, it supports the Stalinist leadership of the of the Vietnamese. They support Ho Chi Minh, and I looked into it and I found that yes, they did. There was an idealisation and idolization as well of Ho Chi Minh mm. as the. They
0: chanted his name, didn't they? First? Yeah, yeah. The ho
1: ho Ho Chi Minh chant. Ho ho yeah. Ho Chi Minh was the big chant on all the big demos, and uh, I. We refrained from chanting that because it was, it was about worship of the uh, individual, worship of uh, the... It was, it was direct from the Stalinist playbook, if you like, just like Stalin was, was uh, re- uh, supposedly revered by uh, in, the, in the days of the, the, the Soviet Union, the cult of personality. That was the phrase I'm, I was looking for. Mm-hmm. And um,
0: well, what what was our program around the the Vietnamese good, revolution? Good good good
1: question. I mean, the the only things I ever saw in our paper and uh, as adverts for a militant readers' meeting were the question of self determination for the Vietnamese people. In other words, it's this is a popular revolution. It's a war of uh, national liberation which has turned into. Uh, 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 a revolution, and also victory to the Vietnamese revolution. We never ever put Ho Chi Minh in our paper. Victory to Ho Chi Minh, or, or 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 even victory to the NLF. Actually, we we said no. It's not about the NLF, which actually were a bunch of Stalinists. And Ho Chi Minh, a lot of people don't realise this, but I've read about it a little bit at the time, and I've read a lot more since. Um. Uh, there is a, there is a book about the history of the Trotskyist movement in uh, Vietnam, which was quite powerful, actually, in uh, particularly in Saigon, which is now Ho Chi Minh City, but was in South uh, Vietnam during the course of the war. And before the war, there were brewery workers and dock workers and tram drivers and all sorts of people in trade unions that were associated with the Trotskyist movement. Uh, and uh, Ho Chi Minh literally butchered the leaders butchered the Trotskyist leaders. Now, if I'm a Trotskyist, I'm not going to go on a demonstration shouting the name of somebody who butchered my comrades 20 years ago. Because that was was the case. This was 1968. Ho Chi Minh butchered them in 1948. Uh, So we drew a line in the sand on that question, supported the demos, went with our own banners, our own slogans, our own paper, and, uh, and so on. During this period, uh, '69 in particular, um, the government uh, uh, deployed troops to Northern Ireland. This was the period of the Troubles, the uh, legitimate demands of the Catholic population for civil rights, for an end to gerrymandering, for uh, democratic representation, for uh, a right to be considered for council housing, uh, rights to you know all sorts of rights that the the the, the, the British government uh, traditionally denied them, that the unionists in uh, Ulster traditionally denied them, and and a movement led by people like uh, Eamon McCann, uh, a movement for democratic rights, and our, uh, our comrades were involved in that movement and supported it particularly. At one stage, the, the Bogside, the, the Catholic area in, um, in Derry, was, was occupied. It was, a, it was a no-go area for the uh, Ulster Police, the Ulster Defence Regiment, the British troops when they were called in. And uh, we argued for a workers' defence force, and that, was, that went on the front page of our paper no support for British troops, for a workers' defence force. In other words, for a defence force based on the trade union movement that could bring together Catholic and Protestant workers. And uh, also subsequently then, when, as people will know, there was a massacre of 13 uh, uh, Catholic youth, um, we, we came out with the headline, "This, Derry, This Was Murder. So we didn't pull any punches. In what we said in our paper, but we argued from a Marxist perspective. Whereas, you know, some of the ultra left groups would be saying, oh, support the terror campaign to keep the British out of Northern Ireland. Uh, In other words, focusing on the military struggle, which actually wasn't going to end up getting rid of the British. Uh, And, uh, you know, something that we pointed out years in advance th- this th- the military struggle will behead a layer of the best of Catholic youth they will be arrested, they will be imprisoned they will be shot, be wounded whatever and uh, lost to the movement we argued if you get rid of the British troops what are you going to replace them with and that had to be the self organisation of the working class Okay, so I
0: think we can change gears a little bit now and kind of talk about the initiatives that, that Militant took in this period. You know, we, we, we've talked a lot about what Militant, you know, said, you know, why we said the things we did um, around those, um, you know, events and those, you know, uh, revolutionary explosions you were talking about. But, you know, what did we actually do? I mean, in particular, we focused a lot of our time in those years um, aiming our work at, at youth, didn't we? And can, Yeah, I mean, h- how was that conducted? How was that carried out?
1: Uh, The two big things I can remember from that period were a campaign against racism and uh, a campaign in support of Spanish Young Socialists. And I'd like to talk about both of those really. Uh, In 1974 um, we began a campaign against racism and that was the first national labour movement campaign that there'd been really since the Second World War. And of course this was in the name it wasn't in the name of militant but it was in the name of the Labour Party and Socialists in which we had a a, a majority Um, the Labour Party and Socialists had uh, we'd won a political majority in the Labour Party and Socialists in about 1971-72 I can't remember exactly but we didn't want to just win a, a, a majority we wanted to do something with it and turn it outwards to youth so one of the things we did was uh, a a charter for young workers which we got got adopted by a number of trade union uh, 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 nationally but also trade union youth sections but i think the most innovative work in some ways was the the work we did against racism it was 1974 and we organized this national campaign so that it led up to a national demonstration against racism which was actually held in Bradford one of the reasons it was held in Bradford was because there was a very large Asian population uh, British Asian population and we were arguing that there was a sense in which it was a campaign against oppression because what we argued was that a lot of these workers were paid less than white workers particularly in the textile industry uh, that that barely exists now in Britain but at the time it was a very powerful force in the northwest of England and in Yorkshire and um, what you'd often find was that the uh, white workers were working the day shift uh, Asian workers were working the night shift now that might have suited them but they didn't get paid the same rate as the white workers they didn't get the same access to the trade union we said the the trade union should be campaigning for equal rights for uh, workers on the other shifts Uh, the the trade union should be issuing leaflets in community languages like Urdu and uh, Gujarati and recruiting these and we ruffled a lot of feathers in the uh, in the Labour Party I was chair of the region of the Yorkshire Region Labour Party Young Socialists at the time and um, we were threatened with disciplinary action because we we were saying it was a statement. We were being told it was a statement against the trade unions, um, and uh, that was nonsense. What we were saying was that the trade the unions. The idea that
0: Asian workers should have equality.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, we, you know, we were saying these things at Labour Party regional conference, and after that, uh, several of us were threatened with regional action, with the uh, disciplinary action. Uh, typically for the Labour Party, and they never got round to actually doing anything. But that was a very powerful campaign. Uh, I remember going on a bus to uh, actually our militant branch meeting uh, a a month or so later, and the the British-Pakistani bus driver wouldn't take our fare because he knew we'd been involved in the (coughs) anti-racist campaign. I mean, we insisted on paying because... He could have lost his job for not taking the fare, but he didn't want to take. He didn't want to take the fare, um, and that gave us a base within the British Asian uh, uh, community in Bradford and, and Huddersfield to extent in, in in Leeds. But at the same time, we were developing the membership of militants, and that was important. You know, it was important to do turning the wires outwards. But at the same time, we were building militants. Um, I could say a bit about the the Spanish campaign as well. Again, it was a different world. We still had military dictatorships in uh, Europe at the time. Uh, Now we have uh, uh, authoritarian regimes uh, with a a, a pseudo-democratic basis to them, like Hungary, uh, and Turkey, where they manipulate election results. But we didn't have that. We had military regimes at the time in Portugal, in, uh, in Spain and in Greece. And uh, we were developing our work, not only young socialist work, but international work for the militant, spreading the ideas of militant in Spain at the time. So we developed This idea of the Spanish Young Socialist Defense campaign, it was another thing that the Labour Party Young Socialists were doing um, to uh, politically raise the question that we had a Franco dictatorship in uh, in Spain at the time. Franco was on his last legs. Uh, He was ill. There was a question. There was going to be an explosion in Spain. And it, and it happened in 1975 so in the run-up to that we were running the Spanish Young Socialist Defence campaign raising money in, um, uh, from the labour movement to send to buy uh, uh, duplicators, uh, fax machines, uh, telephones, printers, whatever was needed to work in the underground to prepare for um, the death of Franco and the explosion that would uh, would follow which would mean that the young socialists having come the Spanish young socialists having been working uh, uh, underground incognito we would get their comrades over to speak at Labour party young socialists conference at the, at the miners' holiday camp in Skegnes or wherever it was and uh, th- there would be a day of international debates and we would be introduced to carlos carlos it was usually carlos some carlos or other who would speak from the platform and he'd have black glasses on he'd be wearing a bandana and uh, a baseball cap or whatever it was at the time and he was uh speaking uh, incognito because we had to protect his identity for when he went back to uh, spain taking uh, the, the money with him. But we were, I remember going to my local uh, Labour Party ward asking for a donation. And they they said, Yeah, we'll give you a fiver, which was a decent donation in those days. And the ward secretary, uh, he didn't say anything, but the ward secretary took it to his engineering union branch as well. And he came back with a fiver a month later. You know, and this was all like in trips and travels we were raising money through the movement because we were raising politically the question we've got to get rid of these military dictatorships and get trade union rights and political rights for the Mm -hmm. Spanish working class Uh, and of course when it actually happened um, the German social dem we'd been pouring in hundreds and thousands of pounds worth of money and when it actually happened the German social democrats poured millions into the social democratic party to build the right wing in the newly legalized uh, Socialist Workers Party, which is what it's called, the PSOE, and their their youth section, to build the right and to keep k- keep the Trotskyists in their place, or better still, kick them out. But it was useful work that we did.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I, s- I suppose the the word that springs to my mind when you when you talk about this is obviously internationalism, uh, because if if, if Trotskyism As, you know, a a tendency, you know, a Marxist tendency that obviously we're affiliated with. If it's ever associated with any word, it's, it's that word, isn't it? Internationalism. I mean, Trotsky himself committed a lot of time, you know, I mean, both. During the Russian Revolution and after, you know, when he took on Stalin uh, and the Stalinists, the idea of the, the you know you know that the, that the socialist revolution would be international, or it would essentially be nothing, and he took on this false you know Stalinist theory of socialism in one country, which is you know obviously something that you know we touch upon in a in a different episode of of, of revolutionary ideas. Um, but that was because Marxist recognised at the time. And still obviously, you know, recognise today um, that the working class is only going to be able to successfully struggle to get rid of capitalism and replace it with socialism um, if it's on an international scale. And I think the important thing that I suppose, you know, I'll, I'll let you expand upon and and I think that you're already kind of talking about is um, for ISA today, internationalism isn't just kind of like something in, the, in 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 theory it's not just a nice thing that we write in, in an article oh we're internationalists it's something that you have to kind of in a way you know as much as you can sort of live and breathe you know as as, as you build a socialist and a marxist organization and i think that really meant placing kind of central and strategic importance on building up those international links and kind of the basis for a future Marxist international. And I mean, you've obviously already said a, a fair amount about the, you know, the work we did in solidarity with the Spanish young socialists, and obviously a part of that was to develop a base for Marxism in Spain, wasn't it, as well? Because we knew that the Franco dictatorship was kind of reaching its end and there was, you know, a revolutionary situation um opening up there. But tell us a little bit more about how we built up our international um organization at that point and you know, yeah how that developed and progressed over the years
1: well the the support and effective political control that we had of the labour party and socialists gave us an important avenue internationally uh, particularly to europe but to other countries as well and uh, so there was a body called the international union of socialist youth which was the youth organisation of the social democrat or uh, international which was associated with the labour party it included it included the swedish and german social democrats and the french socialist party um, and uh, probably the australian labour party as well I, I, I can't remember all the details but we would send uh, leading comrades who had a position in the young socialists it wasn't just militant full-time workers but people with a leading position in the Labour Party and Socialists would uh, go out to these uh, IUSY uh, conferences, which there would be full of bureaucrats, and there'd be a lot of um, uh, a lot of beer drunk, I'm sure, and a lot of uh, speeches from government ministers in the different countries. <laughs> but wherever there would be decent youth, there would be decent working class and student youth. And the comrades would uh, would find them, would would make sure that that was their job to go and make contact with the best elements who would attend these uh, these these events. And so I think in many ways, in relation to Sweden, uh, Germany, Belgium, probably other uh, uh, countries, the, the the first comrades that that would associate with the militant would be probably youth comrades associated with the socialist youth movement in that in that, in that that country. And uh, in, you're absolutely right to stress uh, internationalism. I probably should have said this first because it, it was going through my mind. Internationalism is in the DNA of Trotsky's. And it isn't necessarily in other people's DNA. I mean, most reformists think in terms of, well, how can we control government in this country. And if we get the reins of power in this country, we might be able to collaborate with uh, similar thinking governments abroad. But then if they're Tory or Conservative or Christian Democrat governments, that will be difficult, won't it? So they, they, they usually don't see beyond the nose on their faces, the reformists. The Stalinists, of course, it's in the essence of Stalinism that it represents a nationalist degeneration of of socialist ideas that as long as things are okay here you know we will sacrifice the revolutionary movements anywhere else as long as the Soviet Union is okay and of course it didn't spread world socialism and in in the event it actually collapsed in, in itself but if you're a Trotskyist being an un, an internationalist is is your lifeblood so Uh, we we were always out to build sections in other countries in the 70s we built a section in America we built a section in uh, South Africa there was a section built in Russia I think the China Hong Kong section came a little bit later a section in in Brazil will have been uh, 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 developed and what was important was not, it, it wasn't just, as you said, Tom, it wasn't just about holiday speechifying, nor was it just about sentimental attachment to uh, uh like-thinking uh, individuals and groups at the other side of the globe. So one of the things that Lenin said about the Second International was after they'd uh, capitulated in the middle of the First World War and taken the side of their national uh, governments and voted for war credits in each individual parliament Uh, he said um, the Second International was just uh, a post office it wasn't uh, capable of uh, sharing experiences and developing a coordinated um, uh, uh, leadership internationally Uh, so Yeah, that was what was uh, intended. Um, I'll be honest, I was at the founding Congress in uh, 1974 in London, and to me at the time I'd been a member for five years, I was an active comrade, I'd just started work a a year ago, I wasn't a student any longer, but um, uh, I went along to the meeting. It felt at the time just like another meeting in London that you go to, and there'll be some outcomes from it. But I, you know, comrades have said, "Well, that, isn't that you in that photograph?" Said, well, yeah, it is actually. And actually, in the summer seventy four, uh, my my wife and I hitchhiked around Germany because I I'd, I'd learnt German. I did German at university, and people said, "Well." Why don't you go to Germany this summer? We had comrades in Germany already. We had an English comrade who was working as a teacher there, but the idea was to do a bit of a tour. And my wife and I hitchhiked. Uh, We'd only been married a year. I'd only been working a year, but we hitchhiked around Europe. Uh, We were given a list of towns to go to and the best contacts to talk to, to try and bring them uh, closer to the CWI. Uh, that's what we did
0: amazing amazing so yeah I I think one thing that I want to really kind of pull out um, of all of this is the fact that uh, through this period um, the organization went from really kind of Miniscule numbers it was somewhere in the dozens wasn't it to begin with when it was founded, and then by I think the mid to late eighties it was somewhere in the you know terrain of eight thousand something like that and I guess the the most important thing there that you you're getting at is we built because we tried to we recruited, we organized, we tried to reach people, you know we worked hard, we were patient, persistent, all of these things, but it was also political wasn 't it you know it's what we were saying politically that appealed you know, to the best kind of radical layers, um, you know, of of young workers who were getting politically active, you know, in the unions, in in the Labour parties at that time. But then that really kind of like found its highest expression um, in Liverpool in the 1980s. And I think that's one thing that we want to talk about um, at least a little bit, because I think it deserves um, a fair amount of time. Um, I mean, you know, this, this was a situation where we'd obviously, you know, through our influence and through our work, the policies put forward by the militant of, you know, refusing to go along with Thatcher's program of, you know, making attacks on workers' conditions. You know, we built this mass campaign in the city of, 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 of you know, workers in Liverpool to say, you know, no, we're not going to do what you tell us to do. and We're going to fight to keep our services. Um, you know, it's really kind of like, um, you know, it, it's something that the ruling class still vilifies in Britain at, at, at this point in time, you know, Oh, uh, when those scary militant, you know, people took over um, the city. It's still something, maybe not quite as much today, but it's definitely been a kind of weapon that that the ruling class carts out. And that's because they were afraid of the fact that there was a campaign that was fought very brave and, and for want of a better word, militantly, to fund those services. And, I mean, um, just to say, I mean, I'm active in Socialist Alternative in Liverpool now. And, you know... It, i mean of course it was a long time ago and 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 it's not necessarily a thing that's on everyone's minds every day but it does come up you know you do have workers who who will come up to our campaign stalls and say you know we need people who are going to take the fight to this government like the 47 did and the the 47 was the 47 socialist councillors and that included a number of of militant supporters so it's important that you know through that through that period there there is still the memory that socialists and marxists did fight for and alongside workers and i suppose um one thing that i would i would like to hear is what what was the the kind of rundown how how did that come to be and how did that come into existence and how do we build up that base uh, in order to lead that struggle
1: yeah i think you're right to lay emphasis on the the struggle in in liverpool it was a huge huge event of national significance even international significance uh my i'll I'll try and come back to that but um by the time of the 80s we had built a significant base in the labor party nationally but we had built a quite outstanding base in liverpool and there was no uh that, that that didn't fall from the skies. I mean, the constituencies were very, Labour parties were very active. The trade union movement was very powerful and they had managed to hang on to in Liverpool, despite the aims of the Labour bureaucracy to separate um, the Labour party from the trade union movement because they knew, as we did, that any crisis affecting the working class would Uh, make itself through the trade trade union movement into the Labour Party so the right wing had always tried to separate them but they'd managed to retain what they called the Liverpool District Labour Party which had delegates from uh, every ward, every uh, trade union branch, uh, every constituency party it was a real uh, assembly of the Labour and Trade Union movement in Liverpool, a very powerful, authoritative body. At the, in the, in the, at the height of the struggle, it had 500 people uh, attending uh, the meetings. Now, some people have compared it to a Soviet, and of course it wasn't exactly a Soviet, because in a Soviet you would have the right of immediate recall. Uh, these were people who were elected on, a, on an annual basis. Uh, obviously, they could be renewed. You know, if uh, if there was a crisis in a particular ward or trade union branch, and they would be being renewed all the time as annual general meetings were coming up, and you'd be able to say, well, it's moving to the left, but it might be moving to the left over a period of months, rather than moving to the left over a, a couple of days, which is what would happen in a in a Soviet. So it was still, if you like, tied to the monthly. Uh, schedule of the trade union and Labour Party uh, organisations but nevertheless it was a very powerful and representative uh, body and all the decisions of the council the Labour council during that period kept being referred back and they were the driving force for the uh, for the campaign the, 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 the really important thing about it was they said to, because they had an authoritative body for the working class they said well would you support rate rises and the body said no we don't support rate rises would do you support rent rises no we don't support rent rises either okay so uh if we want to carry um, but we do want new housing estates we do want new sports centers we need to replace uh that uh, 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 secondary school that's that's collapsing um, uh, we ne- We do need nurseries and so on. So okay. Well, what's it going to cost? Okay. Well, that's the money that we need to get from the Tories. It was as simple as that. And it, in a sense,
0: wrestle it out of their hands. You know. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah they yeah. presented a bill uh, to the uh, the uh, to the Tory government that, and the thing is, they thought that Liverpool were going to cave in and they didn't because by the time it got really serious the Liverpool Council had had gone to elections again and they all got re-elected, Labour got re-elected with bigger majorities and uh, the votes went up the really significant lesson of this is that you stand on a programme that promises a lot to working people they've helped to determine that programme and they agree with it, it promises a lot but don't let them down Fight and fight to the bitter end to achieve what you have said you're going to achieve. Because the worst thing is if labour workers, labour supporting workers, workers that are inclined to support the left, say, yeah, well, when they get in power, they're just the same, aren't they? Or or even just that, yeah, well, they promised us a new school and we never saw that. They built a couple of nurseries. But we never got that secondary school and, and it will be remembered that you didn't yeah. carry out your mandate and, and that, you know, that would be a disaster for a socialist movement. That's one of the points that we've learned and applied in Seattle, for example, with uh, Sharma Sawan. Uh, uh, promise what you intend to deliver and deliver what you've promised fundamentalness yeah
0: and, and deliver it by building a movement as well that's that's the key thing is saying you know we, we will fight together for this you know it's not that you elect me and I, I i deliver i hand this down you know like a god to you it's we will organize a mass campaign and we'll, and we'll fight side by side for well it that again. was the
1: thing about liverpool they didn't just go down to uh, liverpool and uh, bang on the door of number 10, although they did do those things because that's what workers would expect to see that on the telly. But they organised, effectively, Merseyside regional general strikes and periodically brought the whole uh, council workforce uh, uh, out. Uh, One of the difficulties in the final stages was that although the district Labour Party had outstanding representation from the uh, affiliated trade unions who were solidly, solidly behind the uh, council's tactics. Unfortunately, a couple of the unions that weren't affiliated to the Labour Party, uh, although uh, in both cases they were led by members of the Communist Party, they put a spoke in the wheel of the campaign uh, by undermining it. That The two unions were now go and uh, the NUT uh, white collar unions many of whose members didn't actually live in the city of Liverpool obviously teachers live all over the place they were coming in from Ormskirk and you know uh, Southport and and the Wirral and places like that to work in Liverpool so they didn't have a direct stake in the maintenance and development of services there they and and so their leaders and the same applied in unison. We're able to say, well, it's nothing to do with, the, with us. We, we don't have a, have a stake in this. That's all the Labour Party. It's all politicking. Uh, I don't know why they can't do a deal with the Tory government anyway. Why are our members being being called out in action by just in solidarity with unions like the GMB or, or, or Unite? Uh, or TNG as it would have been in those days. And and they were able to put spoke in the wheel of the, the campaign. And that was part of the reason why, uh, you know, ultimately uh, it, 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 it failed. And, uh, you know, the, the leading good comrades, many good comrades, many in the militant and many not in the militant got surcharged. The movement said, well, it's on us now. Uh, we can't see people lose their houses. A lot of people got blacklisted. Uh, some people left the area to seek work uh, elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But we weren't prepared to see uh, people lose their houses because of the the, the personal debt and, and the debt was paid by the movement.
0: So what can you tell me about the struggle against the poll tax then? The, the struggle that actually, you know, in, in a way did bring down Thatcher in the sense that it triggered her resignation. What, what role did Militant
1: play in that? Well, the first thing to understand about the poll tax is, is what it was. The, it wasn't the first time there'd been a poll tax. That's why there was a word for it. Uh, poll, poll taxes went right back to the Middle Ages. And you can say in many ways it was a, a medieval or a feudal uh, approach to uh, local taxation. It was effectively a, a head tax. It was a tax that took no account of indiv- individual wealth, or, or income uh, it was uh, a, a tax on uh, the number of individuals you paid the tax on the basis of the number of individuals uh, that paid that lived in uh, a, a particular house uh, the, the The argument at the time uh, I remember the the phraseology was uh, a, a, a duke and a dustman will pay the same. We probably use, wouldn't use the word dustman. Uh, nowadays we'd say refuse collector although I think a lot of them will freely own up to being called bin men and they might describe themselves as bin men but uh, a duke and, and a dustman pay the same so you can see what a grossly unfair uh, uh, tax it would be no account of wealth no account of income you're, uh, uh, you, you, you meet the, the mirror uh, test you're alive and breathing uh, so you, this is what you pay to support local uh, services and it was outrageous and everybody in the labour movement was opposed to it but we uh, all the trade union conferences and labour conferences said this is a terrible iniquitous uh, tax and the first act of an incoming labour government will be to oppose it and we said yeah but what are we going to do about it now and so we argued for for non-payment don't pay don't collect we uh, argued that the local authority uh, trade unions shouldn't uh, 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 collect it. Uh, but that largely meant Nalgo in those days, as uh, local government. and there were there were flurries of activity by left wing Nalgo branches to argue uh, uh, banning work on the uh, the poll tax. We'll do everything else the council asks us to do, but we're not going to collect we're not going to send out summonses and, uh, and and so on but that you know that didn't that didn't amount to uh, uh, too much um, and then um, there began to be a movement not to pay but that didn't come from nowhere it, it came partly because they, they did a trial run of the poll tax in Scotland and our militant comrades up there gave them a very uh, uh, could run for their money. Scotland was the guinea pig uh, and they should have learned their lesson from the introduction of the poll tax in in Scotland because our comrades were busy organising people on the uh, estates, uh, particularly, uh, you know, the social housing, where there was a huge, obviously, reservoir of people who, uh, you know, uh, a family, maybe two adults and two teenage children uh, maybe only one wage coming in, and uh, you've got to find the, the poll tax four times over. So the, the comrades in Scotland developed this idea of bailiff busters. The first thing that happens is if you don't pay, uh, the, the, the council orders a bailiff's company to come and seize your assets in lieu of your, your council tax. So the big the the, the poltex. So the big thing is to stop them getting into the house. And basically, in Scotland, they did a really good job of tracing who were the bailiffs, what were the registration of the vehicles that they were going to come on estates with, uh, basically chase them off the estate. If they come and knock on somebody's door, put twenty people outside the door, very uncomfortable for the bailiffs, making it clear to the family that you're going to defend them. Don't let them in. You've got rights. That was another thing, making sure people knew what their legal rights were and um, then uh, chasing the bailiffs off the estate. If you were unable to do that, then the, and that was particularly the case when it came to the rest of Britain. Uh, people would get summonsed to the local, uh, the local court and uh, so you'd have hundreds of people being summoned on the same day because what they wanted to do was uh, nod them all through uh, and each, each individual case would take like 30 seconds so the trick was to make each case last as long as possible so you'd have hundreds of people outside and you couldn't process them in a day and so uh, uh, there was a lot of training available through the militant uh, there was a lot of individual militant full-timers who were acting as individual, what called Mackenzie's friends, to advise people and to go into court with them and try and uh, spin out what uh, each individual case. So um, uh, just a, as an example, when you go to court, you, you get called, you go and, and stand there in a particular place and they check your identity and they, they were using a particular form of words and said a complaint has been uh, laid against you for non-payment of the uh, of the poll tax so a, a comrade might say a complaint what complaints this who's been complaining against me I want you can't make a complaint in this court without saying uh, g- give him the name because I might want to complain about that. you know and you would m- make up some argument uh, there were loads of other arguments that you could use to try and spin out an individual case. And uh, we basically fouled up the uh, the courts for weeks on, on end.
0: And, and in the end, that led to a, a non-payment campaign that actually, I think it was about 18 million, wasn't it, who didn't actually pay their poll tax. And, that, and and Thatcher herself did have to recognise that it was the mass campaigns, the demonstrations and so on, that kind of... Uh, I mean, it gave her the final knockout of power in a sense, wasn't it?
1: It was, yes. I mean, we're talking... This was a massive, massive thing. I mean, it had its own... There was a life to the anti federations. I mean, there'd be an anti federation on a local estate. There'd be a federation in a town. There'd be re- there were regional bodies. Uh, there was a national body. I remember throughout the, the, uh, the, each each regional body, the, the militant was in a majority with the exception for the Southwest. I remember there was an anarchist, I think who, uh, he was quite a good bloke, but he just wasn't a militant. He was a, a good fighter, but he, a, he was in the, the Southwest region, but all the other regions, uh, um, it was a majority of militant supporters. Who, who were elected to the, the the Federation. And the reason was we were the people who threw everything at it. Uh, other other people who talked about uh, non-payment. I mean, the, the most shame, shameful one really is the question of the Socialist Workers' Party, because they said initially they'd support a non-payment campaign. But then t- Tony Cliff came up with this famous statement that it wouldn't work. Because if you don't get, if you don't pay your fare, you just get thrown off the bus. Well, what he meant was if you if you don't pay uh, the, the poll tax, you'll get thrown in jail. Well, that's actually what happened, you know. Uh, and it happened with a number of our comrades who were prepared to do that. It happened with uh, the Labour MPs who supported the militant, particularly you know Dave Nellis and Terry Field, who both went to prison for non-payment of the poll tax i think there was about 30 or 40 people in the end of the day who were prepared to go to prison for uh, non-payment of the poll tax and quite a number of them were were militant supporters we were prepared to fight to the bitter end and other people were just saying well yeah it won't it won't lead anywhere well actually what it led to was uh, an end to the tax an end to thatcher Uh, We couldn't quite manage getting rid of the Tory government. That would have been three out of three. That would have been brilliant. But it was a fantastic campaign.
0: A a strong two out of three, yeah. Um, So um, just to move us on then, uh, I I, I guess um, one thought that's been springing up in, in my mind is I would imagine... For some maybe first-time listeners to this podcast or, you know, people who've just gotten in touch with Socialist Alternative, even some people who might have joined recently and have have, have gotten actively involved in Socialist Alternative, the idea that the labour party would be a place where you could build a marxist organisation can i mean it can feel very alien can't it you know you look at starmer's labour um today and just the extent to which he's tried to destroy every kind of remnant um of the left but also you know what labour ended up as in the late 90s you know blair um, you know tony blair gordon brown new labour um that, that was a conscious thing that the Labour right developed, wasn't it? And when we were talking about, you know, building these mass campaigns, um, you know, spreading socialist policies and socialist ideas through the Labour movement, we didn't do it without our opponents, did we? We did it in the face of massive opposition, both from the Tories, I mean, obviously it'd be from the Tories, uh, because, you know, they're opposed to socialists, but also from the Labour right. And in the end, that led to basically a campaign to try and drive um, our forces out of the Labour party, didn't didn't it? And yeah, I mean, how how did that happen? Tell us a little bit about
1: that. Um, I think in some ways this may be uh, a personal experience, but I mean, we fought expulsions, for years and years and years. The editorial board of the militant, who were easily identifiable, um, they were expelled, I think it was in 1983. Um, uh, nobody tried to expel me. I was selling the, uh, the militant uh, in uh, our local Labour Party um, and uh, in my union branch as well the the NUT uh, so in a sense they thought that by beheading the editorial board that might do the job but it, it didn't really make any difference because they were still uh, 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 producing the militant every week and we were still selling it in our Labour parties. There were uh, attempts in some individual Labour parties to uh, uh, attack people but I never heard of that Around uh, the Manchester area, uh, not until much later, and I'll have to explain what happened there. Um, I think the 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 turning point, really, in many ways, came around about 1990, because the the movement over the the poll tax and the movement over Liverpool uh, were coming to an end. The Liverpool movement had, in a sense, been defeated, but there were, although there were major gains which are still there in terms of that secondary school, those housing estates, etc., and the, if you like, live on in the folk memory of the the Liverpool working class. I've met lads in in Liverpool who've said, "Oh yeah, my mum was was involved in all that," you know, back in the eighties, back in Liverpool. Uh, but so. You, you you had right, that yeah. that was coming to an end. You'd also had um, the the poll tax that, that, that had ended mu- much more successfully, with an end to uh, the, uh, uh, the the tax and to Thatcher. And that period of ninety, we had a a very significant base in Liverpool, still. And the question is what we were going to do with it, and. Um, the general tide in the Labour Party was turning against the left in that period. Uh, Tony Blair was leader of the party. He was um, shaping to get rid of Clause 4, which was the clause that um, promised a system of nationalisation and social ownership. And um, so we, we knew that the, the right it was on the wall, but we were continuing to build... Within the Labour Party, um, I think this is the personal bit. I think, in many ways, the poll tax uh, laid bare the, uh, the 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 cleavage line within the Labour Party between Labour councillors on the one hand, who were trying to deliver services, but were, were prepared to work with whatever crumbs they got from the Tory government. And the working class and the left in the Labour Party and particularly ourselves were saying, no, you should be fighting back against the Tories, see what Liverpool did, see what they achieved. And that, you were never going to be able to get uh, for a, a lengthy period of time, get over that division. Between the people who put the interests of the working class first and the people who wanted to administer social services under capitalism. So they'd been screaming at us when the anti poll tax campaign was active. We were putting resolutions at constituency parties saying uh, don't collect it, uh, don't uh, 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 imprison people, don't take people to court for non payment and all this sort of thing, and we had Labour leaders who'd previously been on the left saying uh, we can't possibly do that, we'll have no income coming in from the tax, we will have to cut social services and so on, so you, you can't square that circle uh, for for very long, if they weren't prepared to fight to uh, to do what Liverpool had done, then uh, the, the, the battle lines were drawn in the Labour Party and it came to the crunch in Liverpool really when uh, We uh, gathered our forces, some of the comrades were still councillors, they were in the minority position on the council. And uh, so we gathered our forces and said we said we were real Labour and uh, we stood against the Labour Party, if you like, on a programme of we need to be doing what what the council uh, uh, did and achieved and we need to be doing more of that. And so we ended up in the Walton by-election when Eric Heffer, who'd who'd previously stormed off the platform at Labour Party conference, when Kinnock attacked uh, Millicent from the platform. Um, And he, he, you know, there might have been issues that we weren't aware of. But uh, 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 as far as we were concerned, Eric Heffer was supporting our comrades. And um, he unfortunately uh, died. And that raised then the question of uh, who would replace him. So he'd been a Labour MP and solidly on the left and an ally of ours for literally decades. So obviously comrades put themselves forward, uh, or we were pushed forward. Uh, didn't didn't get the selection, and then were pushed forward to say, well, we should stand against some right wing, uh, against Peter Kilfoyle, who was a right wing creature that the Labour Party uh, appointed, and. Um, I think the comrades felt they had to stand so we, we felt we had to support that i was me and everybody else in the militant were going over to liverpool on weekends to uh, support the comrades leslie Mahmood standing for real labor in walton uh, as against peter calfoyle for labor uh, we went over at weekends to support them and I remember on the on the election day itself on thursday uh, got out of work at four o'clock, drove straight over to Liverpool, worked there, uh, knocking up, uh, leaflets in, public meetings to mobilise people to vote, mainly knocking up right up to nine o'clock. Went to the social, got a very disappointing result, standing against Labour, uh, for real Labour, a couple of thousand votes. Uh, Stayed overnight in Liverpool at a comrade's house, drove to work at seven o'clock the next day, and worked all day licking my wounds. All the comrades licking their wounds from the defeat in uh, in Walton, and that began a debate then throughout militant about whether there was a room for staying in the Labour Party at all, and it did eventually to a split within a couple of years, less than that. Uh, in in the militants about the uh, open turn, um, the majority supported uh, turn towards open work, and uh, uh, we declared ourselves as as, as militant labour uh, rather than real labour.
0: And yeah, so obviously that opened up uh, a very difficult period, really, didn't it? Because at the same time that these debates were breaking out and Militant, you know, moved towards doing open work, you know, departed from the Labour Party uh, and so on. Uh, Around this same time, obviously, Stalinism collapsed. And that very much had obviously, you know, this impact of kind of massively throwing back consciousness and this idea that there could be an alternative to capitalism. And really, it was... you know, I mean, of course, I wasn't around at the time. I was, I was, you know, born in nineteen ninety-seven. So this is all very much, you know, before my time. But it, 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 from when I when I hear people, um, you know, comrades and members of Socialist Alternative talking about that period it very much felt like we were kind of swimming against the stream you know so to speak through that period and obviously it's a credit to everyone who remained involved and remained um you know committed to those ideas um and i think that's one of the key things to kind of take out of this but i suppose you know just to let you sum up this episode uh and and round things up for the for this episode of revolutionary ideas in sum what do you think were the key lessons of the battles that militant fought through that period? What can we take away from that and apply to today and and what can socialists um, learn from this whole period?
1: I think you're right about the 90s. Uh, I'd have to sort of spell out in in what way they were difficult, why they were difficult. Um, I think the the bit we haven't talked about is the defeat of the miners in, in 1985, which obviously was partly at the same time as the Liverpool struggle. What were, uh, miners had been beaten before. Miners were beaten in 1926 and then they came back in the 70s and won two victories against Tory governments. But in the, in the 1985, the miners were beaten and they were snuffed out. The miners disappeared. The industry closed down. And the sense that the Labour movement had those big battalions, disappeared. Um, You mentioned also the collapse of the uh, uh, Soviet Union. Uh, I don't think anybody realised at the time the significance uh, of that. And of course, we as Trotskyists, part of the reason why we didn't realise the significance at the time was because we had no illusions in the Soviet Union we had expected a political revolution we also were uh, if you like braced against the possibility of capitalist restoration trotsky himself was braced against that possibility in in indeed he more or less predicted it that eventually the bureaucracy would run out of steam and there would there could be a a, a capitalist restoration Uh, so we had no illusions but what we didn't recognize was the significance of the model of the soviet union and uh, perhaps we should have realized that better because ted grant had analyzed better than anybody else what happened in the colonial revolution talked about that earlier on and the model that that gave to um the the model that the, the soviet union gave to cuba to syria at different times to Vietnam to Burma you know to a, a number of these countries who slung the Americans or the French or the British uh, out and had they had a model but they also had uh, an aid somebody who would lend them a few clapped out MiG aircraft um, somebody somebody they could sell their sugar to you know in the case of Cuba so they had that but what we didn't realize was that that provided an alternative model for many left-thinking workers and and you know students and uh, 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 throughout the globe. That it looked at that you know, if you remember, the, the the Wall Street Journal came out with the headline "We Won," and it really looked as if that's it. It's just capitalism's the only game in town now, and uh, that was very very powerful. I don't think we realized at the time how powerful. That was the What are the lessons for me from the nineties? Um, I share with you, Tom, admiration for the comrades who have have stuck with it or or found their way back into the movement. For a lot of people, Corbynism gave people a a, a bit of a, a lift and and a and a way back into the movement. For me, the lessons are, and I'll I'll sum up now. You've got to stick to your guns, stick to your guns. Marxism is all we've got as a way of understanding the world and we have to stick with Marxism both as a method and as, if you like, a set of conclusions about what we need to do. But I think the other side of it, it, um, but this applies particularly to the 90s and coming out of them, patience, to be patient with people, but it's a revolutionary patience uh, I, I think Trotsky talked about the importance of removing obstacles and I think we do need to think in terms of removing obstacles if there's a financial obstacle we need to raise money if it's hard to get to a picket line we need to find somebody with a car we need to remove all those physical obstacles but when it comes to the barriers in people's heads we can't rush those fences because we'll come a cropper and we've always been patient we still are patient with people we patiently explain that was a phrase that comes from that period of the 60s and 70s when we were rebuilding we patiently explain the ideas and uh, we invite people to join us uh, in activity but also to join us in building a revolutionary party because it's only in that that the future of humanity lies.